Content on this episode may not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Be good enough that God would change me and I would no longer be gay. All right. But there was a day I woke up and just thought, today is the day the pain ends. Just go throw yourself in front of the tracks. This is Anne Dibbon welcoming you to Unexpected Turns, the show where along with my two best friends, Julie Tattersall and Beverly Evans, we delve into the lives of people whose lives haven't quite gone to plan. Today we talk to Skip Sams, who having established himself as an extremely successful music producer, suddenly, on what appeared to be a whim, gave it all up. Today we find out why and what happened next. Hi Skip. Hello. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. It's lovely that you could join us. Now where exactly are you? Are you actually in Chicago? I am. I am. I'm in Evanston which is the first suburb of Chicago but it's really just uh right there. Yeah. How are you feeling today? I am good. I got to sleep in a little bit. So that was pretty exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Lucky you. Bev and I were just wondering, Skip, where the name came from. Why you were called Skip. Yeah. Is it like a nickname or something, Skip? Yeah. It's named after both my grandfathers, Lawrence and Paul. And right. uh, they didn't want to show preference. So uh, they call me Skipper, like a captain. Yeah. Which means a dumpster, like in Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> Very diplomatic. I didn't even know I had another name, and I was about three years old. And <laughs> I was I was uh, hiding out in my mother's closet. I did not know what I did, but it was one of those things where, uh, you know, the kid's hiding in the closet. And, you know, remember how mothers or fathers but it would be like skip where are you skipper where are you skipper sams where are you and finally lawrence paul sams where are you <laughs> wow yeah. i came running out of the closet and i was crying because i thought they're not because i thought i was going to get in trouble but i thought she was yelling at another little boy in the house and i got jealous oh <laughs> so that's she sat me down uh, uh she was on her bed and she sat me down and explained to me that your grandpa O'Donohue is Lawrence and your grandpa Sam's is Paul so so you're Lawrence Paul that's the story of my name yeah wow cool that's good and were either of your grandparents into music like you or where did that come from that came from my mom yeah, my mom would play in the piano and I think when she was in junior high school and my grandparents bought her an old C3 organ back in the 50s. She still has it today. Wow. And she started to learn and she and she played so she was always my biggest fan and anytime I had lessons mine started but I loved singing in church. My father was a minister so mm -hmm. I was able to sing my first solo at three years old, and even though I, you know, wow. just because people thought, oh, here's your son, let's, you know, let's let him come up and sing, and 
turn around and shake my butt and they would laugh. And, <laughs> <laughs> and um, mm -hmm. but then when I was five, I started tap dancing Gosh. and that like my love of performance. Mm -hmm. I, I always loved to sing. And when I was 12, my mother let me start taking voice lessons. So you'd sung, okay. but you hadn't actually had any lessons. Not really. No, uh-uh. Cool. No, she wanted to make sure my, you know, waited until my voice started changing. Yeah. So where did you go from there, um, Skip? Did you, were you into musical theater or what, what direction did you take then? When I was uh, in junior high, I started singing a lot at church events and youth rallies, youth uh, uh, weekend retreat and to be the vocalist. And I love doing that. This was with yeah. your family. So you went as a family group. No, actually, I started my my parents would take me when I was uh, singing and they would take me. But it was uh, it was I was I was the one there is the special guest performer. When I was 16, the driver's license go on. My wow. Own. Yeah. Some, some undertaking at 16 to start traveling around by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, around the, around the uh, the state of Ohio a little bit. It was it was it was quite fun, you know. So I did the tap dancing, and one think I would uh, to music theater, but um, I geared more towards uh, becoming a minister. That was my original thought, and partially because I really had. Uh, a love of doing that but partially it was hoping that I could be good enough that God would change me and I would no longer be gay all right because I prayed all the time you know because you know bringing up in the church I would hear yeah, understand mm. you know that uh, God does not love gay people so I thought the more I try to uh, pray, yes, the more I tried to pray that uh, God would spare me from being gay. And were your parents aware of your sexuality at this time, Skip? No, no, no. They didn't know until later. So I went to Bible college, and it's the humorous part of this is my my sophomore year. My, uh, I was seeing this girl and she told me, uh, it was just before winter break around American Thanksgiving. And she said, Skip, you need to move to Los Angeles and work on your music career and come out of the closet. Mm. So that was my girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's yes. what you did. Yes. And how did that sit with your, your folks? Well, I went to a music school out there, so they were very supportive in that first year. I was there. I wasn't, you know, I was far enough away from home. I lived with my brother, but he was so far in his career that um, he wasn't really paying attention to, you know, I could be at school. I was at the school in Los Angeles and I could be out. Yeah. So I started to come out a little bit and met some friends and they knew. And so I was able to get a taste of what it was like to live authentically, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was 18 at the time. Right. The normal exploratory thing for any kid that age. And 
that's when uh, drugs and alcohol came into my came into the mix as well. I was introduced to margaritas and coke on the same night. So we start with a bang. That was all at 18. So at 18, your new friends, you started to come out to your new friends and you had the drugs and the alcohol. A lot to happen. Yeah. Yeah. From Ohio to California, it's the other side of the continent. So mm. very different lifestyle. Very different and- lifestyle. Of that I moved there in January and then in November. I'd become really depressed. I was bulimic at that time as well. My parents even flew out at one point to meet with my psychiatrist. Right. And I, oh my gosh, that's I, a memory is just flying back to me. They came out to see mm-hmm. my psychiatrist and I, psychiatrist, I ate, and he knew my parents were coming and he had agreed that we were not going to tell them because I wasn't ready. They got off the plane. We literally went from the plane to the psychiatrist office and we sat down and my psychiatrist looked at me and said, Skip, is there something you want to tell your parents? Right. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so uh, closed up, shelled up. But after uh, I started, I fell into a depression after that, so, you know, started to So did you tell it. your parents then? I did not tell my parents then. Yeah, I I totally closed down. Right. And then um, I started to get pretty depressed. And I had a doctor who wanted to put me on any depression medicine. And Hmm. it's like, okay, if you're going anti medicine, then we want to what's really going on. That's so hard for you. So you you spoke to your parents. And so then they rang your doctor, is that right? Or they rang you and asked? So I'm, in the summer is when they came to visit and we went to the psychiatrist and uh, I shut down when the psychiatrist mm. made me come out to them. Um, so that was a rough mm. week and they went back to Ohio and I found another psychiatrist yeah. because I didn't, you know, I could trust. And mm. After meeting with him for a few months, he wanted to put me on um, antidepressant medication. Yeah. And at 19 years old, you know, my parents see still saw all of my medical records and because I was on their insurance. And they were like, if you're going on antidepressants, we want to know what's really going yeah, on. Yes, they did. So I told them over the phone, and that was a very difficult discussion. Oh, gosh. But, you know, I was 1,500, 1,800 miles away, so... Um, Do you think, Skip, that they had any idea? Because sometimes, you know, you refine this, don't you? Is there something? Do you think they they had any idea? No, they had no idea. Okay. That's what they told me. And I remember I would leave Vince uh, when they came out. When they came out that summer, this was back in the eighties, right? And I wore an earring, and I remember my mom said, "You look gay. So oh. what? So what? Yeah." Just trying to throw little hints there, but so they, you know, that, um, so now I was out to them. I came out mm-hmm. to the family and, uh, did so you anyway, feel that, better though? Once they knew, cause you said you went into a deep depression. Did you feel better once they knew? I, I, I think I did. Yeah. I came back to Ohio, but, uh, you know, it's interesting at that point I was 19 and 
they had always taken very good care of me. You know, I'd always got the music lessons I wanted to. Uh, when I went in to go to a school across the country, I mean, they were able to for that. And when uh, I came out to them, they were insistent that I was going to go back to Ohio, um, do family therapy. And then if I didn't, that I... I forget how they put it, but it was basically I was going to be, you know, living on the streets of they weren't going to support me. And so I was like, how do I do that? I had no concept that I would be able to support myself at that point. So what were they hoping that to, the family therapy was going to was going to do for you as a family? I then? don't know. I don't know. But I, you know, I know it was a shock to them. And uh Maybe I was going to change. Maybe they just needed to adjust. I don't know. We never did the family therapy. We never actually did it. Partially, I think, well, no. I Two weeks after I got back to Ohio, I had, I found my first boyfriend. So. Okay. And what did they say yeah. to that? Or didn't you introduce him? No, I did. Um, that was, I was with him for a couple of years. They had to come into some acceptance Good. about that. Good, good. And were um, you still living at home at this point, Skip? Uh, no, I don't think I moved back in with them when I got there. If I was, it wasn't very long. I found an, my own place to live. Yeah, but uh, that's when my drinking started to become a major problem. Mm -hmm. I knew when I was, by the time I was 21, I had a drinking problem and I was experimenting with drugs, but that wasn't really a problem at that point. It was more recreational, but the drinking was constant every day. And so I, I went to my first 12-step meeting when I was 21. And yeah. yeah, and I walked into the meeting and it was actually a meeting for uh, gay and lesbians. And this was, this was like what would have been 1989, something like that. And I couldn't understand why all these gay men were talking about God. It just really confused me because in the 12 steps, you know, we have, it talks about God. Yeah, of course it does. But I understand it's not the Christian faith God. It's not, God is anonymous. That's what, that's how I put it, right? You yeah. can be from any religion and come and work in a recovery group in the 12 steps. But I just mm -hmm. immediately thought, you know, I know about God. I don't know why these gay men are talking about God. No, thank you. And what are these drunken derelicts mm. to teach me about God? And yeah. so I, I did not, I did not go. I, I don't even know if I stayed through the whole meeting, but, but I knew I had a problem mm. and yeah. that just grew and grew. And um, I remember a day I was probably in my later 20s. I, I loved marijuana and I was smoking marijuana all the time. And there was a day I could not find anyone around. It was before it was legal and you could buy it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was went to my mother's and she's looking at me and she's looking at my eyes and I'm, I'm totally sober. And she yeah. looks at me, she's like, what's wrong with you? Like she kind of figure out why I looked, you know, she was suspecting that something was wrong with me when I was actually sober because she hadn't seen me sober in a long time. Uh, you were living in Ohio at this point. Yeah, I, st I stayed in Ohio for several years because of my boyfriend. Right. What were you doing? Were you working? How were you sort of funding? I was actually working for my parents. Right. 
yeah, actually working for them. Um, what did that involve, Skip? I was doing I was doing more like business administration stuff. Okay. Or the bookkeeping and stuff. Dude, that's so long ago. Oh my God, we're talking like thirty-five years ago now. So. But you were functioning. You were functioning enough to uh, be yes, able to was, do to do a job. Yes, I was functioning quite well. I would show up late, but you know yeah. that's a typical twenty-year-old. Yeah. Yeah. Now, so I was in Ohio for several years, and then I went back to Los Angeles to do some more school, um, and then I went back to Ohio. I just played the back and forth game a little bit, and um, I couldn't stay in school because uh, of um, drinking. It took me 12 years in seven different colleges to get my four-year degree right. because I was moving around and trying to escape whatever circumstances or situations I would create. One was I was in a, a very bad abusive relationship. And mm. so I moved to escape him. And again, I attribute that to it's not my fault he was abusive, but I do take responsibility that in my drinking days, I was not making good decisions. Mm -hmm. And I was people who always had my best interest at heart when I was, you know, starting to use heavy drugs. Um, so I found myself in that relationship. And so I moved again across country and my way out was to go to school that was that was the actual end of that because after that abusive relationship you knew i saw on tv once we had a a talk show a daytime talk show host here in america at that time um sally jesse raphael and uh she was the kind who would have the the people on their show and talk about their situation and mm. I remember she had an, uh, a woman on there who was abused and she talked about how you have to have an escape plan. And like you just, if you're in that kind of abusive relationship and like the guy I was, he said, if I ever left, he would blow off my parents' heads, you know, so that kind of threat, you know, mm. you know? but um I put, I saved up money. I applied to uh, a school that would take all my credits from all the six previous colleges uh, out in California. And um, so I but put Skip, this shows an incredible level of sort of determination on your part, though, Skip, despite, you know, this sort of spiral in addiction and, you know, the, the relation, toxic relationship you were in, you still, you still wanted to do school and complete your study. Yeah, the one thing about making the plan, the escape plan, was make, you, make your escape plan, your life is better. Don't just like go from your house to a friend's house. You know, move up in such a way that it makes your life better that you begin to see and you don't want to yeah. go back. And that was the best advice I had heard. Plan so that your life is better. So going back to school was making my life better. And it was yep. where I had the opportunity to write my first musical at that school. Um, they saw my potential and my talent and just really embraced it in the music and theater departments. And I got to thrive. Wow. Thrive, um, that's such a good word, isn't it? Yeah, I got to, I was, you know, I wasn't surviving, I was thriving. Oh. So I was definitely not going 
back to that relationship and I moved moved on but you were still drinking at this time oh or... yes yes okay yeah. um we'd have cast parties um I lived in a little tiny house um by the by the university and after all rehearsals you know the cast would come over and and I was still heavily drinking and actually started to get in that's where I started to get into crystal meth a little bit as well right um and it was like an occasional uh thing uh, I I knew somebody that I would he, he wasn't really a boyfriend we were just kind of we would hang out and mm-hmm. I don't know if he introduced it to me but we would do uh crystal meth like once a week right and I'd hang out with him and I had had different drugs come into my life at different periods. Like at one point I was smoking crack in my early twenties. Wow. The interesting thing is I, I was smoking crack and I thought, I knew I had to stop. There was one night I thought I was having a heart attack and mm. I really wanted to stop. I put my, I left the city and I went out to the country for five days because I knew I was going to like have some withdrawals and so forth. And I, and I took a lot of stuff and I faked for five Gosh. days that's what I did and I I said I'm going to not do anything for 30 days I'm not going to drink I'm not going to smoke pot and uh because I need to get off crack and mm. at the end of the 30 days I thought oh see I've proven I'm not an addict um, right so I went to the bar and I bought everybody in the bar shots celebrating that I'm not an addict uh, yeah <laughs> oh, right yeah but did it work? No, I just, no. that was my early 20s. You know, it was it was always something. But Crystal, eventually, like fast forward um, a decade, um, Crystal Meth is what brought me to my knees. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really made me get to the point of like, I, I can't drink, I can't do anything because um, I was no. suicidal. Yeah. Skip, did you have good friends around you at this time? Or were your friends addicts also you know I'm just thinking of this maybe the support network someone who may have tried to help at that point I was mostly hanging around with people who you know drank Um, yeah some were into you know some other drugs but I also had a different support system who you know I was still close I was close to my family it's some journey that you have been on yeah all the way and your determination just to keep going is phenomenal and to move on I I just don't know where you've got that strength from that strength would you know I I um I know now I I don't know where it was then I you know there's always something inside where as much as how do I say this you know, I was always trying to escape who I was, you know, um, and never really, I had never been able to, um, what's the word? I've, I've never been able to um, put together, I know there's a word and it's on the tip of my tongue, but put together of my, my religion and spirituality um, with being gay and that reconcile them thank you <laughs> thank yeah. you that is the word 
and was never able to really reconcile that. And, you know, I had a spirituality about me and I did explore some things, but uh, while I was still using and so forth, but I never was really able to reconcile that. And so something was really missing and what was missing, I filled with drugs and alcohol. So that's what, and, and anytime I would find any success, I'd sabotage it. Mm. I, you know, I had a recording studio downtown in the loop of Chicago. Mm. The loop is like where all the high rises are in the, and uh, the theaters. And I had a recording studio there and there was a day, this was when I was about in my uh, mid thirties. And I just, I had this thought one day that I am going to close my recording studio so that I could use crystal math full time. Right. My, my thought was that clear. It was that clear. And uh, so I did. And you know, I had a recording studio. I wasn't rich. I wasn't famous. I didn't have, but I, I was up and coming. Um, I had uh, one national album released. I had uh, yeah. a national celebrity on my, on my label. Right. People in town were coming to ask me to produce their albums and so forth. But I just wanted to use drugs full time. So I sabotaged that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that went on for about three years uh, where I did, I just um, began using my habit to support my habit. I'll just put it that way. And uh, after about three years, now I was 39. So this has been 20 years of, Mm. you know, success, success, sabotage, success, sabotage, move across country, success, sabotage, move across, you know, it was just yeah that spiral um trying to fill the, and just trying to fill this hole just trying to fill that gap and one day i woke up and uh, we call our subway here the l i think you all call it the tube right yes we call ours in chicago the l because it's elevated yeah and um i had been afraid to get on the l for months because I just kept visualizing myself falling in the tracks, whether I did it on purpose or by accident. And I, you know, I was doing so many drugs at this point that I, I was not in the right mind at all. But there was a day I woke up and just thought, today is the day the pain ends. Just go throw yourself in front of the tracks. And I had had uh, suicidal thoughts before throughout you know, the 20 years, but this is the first time that I like made a plan. This is the first time that I thought, go do it. So as I lay there in bed, my, my brain, you know, cause I thought you're 40 years old. You've messed up the last 20 years of your life. You've thrown away every opportunity that life has ever presented to you. Just go do it. And there was something about that moment. Um, now I see it as my first interaction with uh, God of my understanding, G-O-D, gift of desperation. Okay. And there was something 
there was something about that moment that I made that decision. Right. I, and just like the thought about close the studio. Yeah. And, you know, use full time came the thought, uh, your life doesn't have to be over. It could be half over. And how I got to that thought was, you're almost 40 years old. You've messed up the last 20 years of your life. Just go do it. Wait a minute. What if I do something for the next 20 years of your life? Then you'll only be 60. And 60 is not that old anymore. No, thank you. It's not. <laughs> right? <laughs> and then, <laughs> it's not. And then, wow, if I live to be 60, I could live to be 80. And that just uh, blew me away, that thought, because I'd never seen my life past 40. I'd never been able to visualize my life past 40. Where did that kind of epiphany come from? That kind of realization, you know? That's why I say it was my, you know, generically God, that gift of desperation. Yeah. Gave the insight. There was something inside that just sparked and was like, no. You know, your life doesn't have to be over. Mm. It could be half over. Now I'm 55 and I'm wondering if it's half over yet. But, you know, <laughs> I think 80 is, is I'm going to go quite past that. But what happened, that gift of desperation set me on a path of hope. And I went to rehab again. This time it was for me. I had gone before to save my relationship. Um, but I went for me. I mean, I went for Mike. I went to save my relationship. And when he was like, no, I'm not going to family therapy. I'm not doing anything. It's done. I was like, well, I'm, I'm out of here. Good. And, um, but this time I wanted to live. I did it for me. And I went to rehab and I saw that 12-step poster on the wall that I've seen many times because I had gone through 12-step meetings throughout the years, knowing there's an answer there, Yeah. but wasn't ready to deal with God, that word. And I saw on the wall, the third step, we turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Yeah, yeah. Now, I had, I had always seen we turn our will and our lives over to the care of God. And I'm like, no, thank you very much. I know how that works. And it doesn't work here. Exactly. Um, mm. But I, it came to mind for the first time as we understood him. And it's italicized and underlined. Like that is so important. And I'd never really paid attention to that part. And instantly I thought, oh, it doesn't have to be the God of my understanding mm -hmm. that I grew up with. Yeah. Um, and that I get to decide. Yeah. And my very first thought was, well, I'm not saying as we understood him because God's not a him. Yeah. I don't understand. Now this is for me, right? But this is with the understanding right away. It was like, I've never understood how God could be a man. God. Why isn't God a woman or why can't there be something else? It just never really understood, you know, the patriarchal thing. I just, yeah. right. So um, now I say for myself, I turn my will and my life over to the care of God of my understanding. And that's how I phrase it now to myself. And um, today, you know, I, I have different beliefs around 
who or what God is. And I'm exploring, I explore different forms of meditation. I've read many different spiritual texts. And I also keep up on science. Like, where is this universe from? There's, there is, there should be no, in my opinion, I don't like to use the word should, uh, religion and science uh, really ought to start working together a little better because mm. anyway, that's me. That's my exploration of God. As in the rooms of the anonymous programs, uh, people are anonymous. We don't talk about, you know, our, we don't talk about uh, our user last names or what our careers are very much. You know, we just keep it like focused. But in the rooms, I like to say God is anonymous. God is anonymous because, you know, if we're going to start talking about our individual beliefs in a higher power, then we'll never get to the source of why we're there, which is to help each other through uh, our addiction and and recovery. Um, God is a word that we use to communicate. Um, We also use the word higher power. Yeah. it's it's a word we use to communicate it does not have to it does not divine divine that was a that was a slip there (laughs) (laughs) it does not define uh the word does not define any one specific um idea and i think that's um to me it's you know i don't want to know everything about I, I, my brain is so small in the scheme of things in the universe that I, I could not, I don't know if it could comprehend like every aspect and that's okay. So who am I to tell someone else what to believe? No, it's, it's your idea. I mean, we, we've got a comedian here, long dead now, Dave Allen, who always used to end his comedy sketches with let your God go with you. And, you know, I think, that's it, isn't it? It's your, it's your personal faith, your personal belief of whatever that word represents. Yes. Yeah. To you. And with that, I've been able to reconcile. Yeah. And fill that hole with other things other than drugs and alcohol. You know, as I said, I'm, mm-hmm. and, and that's where uh, music um, I lost music, you know, through through crystal meth addiction. I lost my piano playing ability. I lost my voice. Um, but the truth of it is, when I say I lost something, that's not true. The truth is, I gave it away. I gave it away. Just as I told you, I closed my recording studio. Within that small decision mm-hmm. came the decision, mm-hmm. I'm giving away my career i'm giving away my musicianship i'm giving away my voice yeah um so recovery i i like this um i did not lose my music because of addiction mm-hmm. i gave my music away to addiction but recovery has gifted music back to me and yeah that's uh, and recovery has gifted back my relationships with my family. Good. You know, I used to think my family abandoned me because there was at the end, they didn't talk to me. 
Um, it's not because they didn't love me, but they had to stop talking to me because I was worrying them so much. They had to separate. Yeah. They had to. That tough love. Um, for their own sanity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And for their own sanity to be able to deal with it. So I abandoned them long before they abandoned me. That version of you. That version of you. Yeah. Yes. Oh, so this road to recovery began. You had this moment and you went along to your meeting and really you haven't looked back, have you? You've continued to go. Yeah, that was uh, 16 years ago. Yeah. I was just going to ask how long, 16 years, yeah. Yeah, um, April 20th, 2006. Amazing. Wow, such a thing to do. And do you feel very proud of yourself? I have to be careful in, for me, I have to be careful in being proud of it. It's, it's more of a state of mind of gratitude and humility because I'm not doing this on my own. You know, I, I am powerless over drugs and alcohol. I am powerless over it. My road to recovery has empowered me, yeah. but my road to recovery has included a support group of fellow recovering addicts, um, majorly. It has involved the God of my understanding, mm -hmm. who remains anonymous. There's many different aspects of it. Yeah. I think I can say I'm proud of some of the work that I've done as a result of my recovery. But my recovery itself is a gift. And so that comes more of a place of humility and gratitude. Yeah. You know, this sort of brings us on to your life coaching and how you are giving back to others, how you are helping others. Could you tell us a little bit about this and about your... Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was not just I was able to pick up and start off from the beginning to sing again and play piano again. In fact... The first year or so of my recovery, I had to be okay and come find some resolution and that I was not going to be able to play piano or sing again. And because I tried and I just couldn't do it, but I wanted to stay clean. I wanted to stay sober. I wanted to live. And if that meant that I couldn't do music anymore, then that was going to be the way it was. Mm. But I found uh, another creative outlet through visual arts. Hmm. And I started taking some classes at a community college just for fun. So I could have a different creative outlet. And it was very interesting because in the beginning of that year, because it was college, things were graded, which I didn't really care. But my grades were like these, mm. you know, yeah. and I'm sure those professors were being being uh, kind because my work was so crap, but they just they didn't want to fail it. But I noticed after six or seven months of doing it for the love of it, not judging it, I had nothing to judge it by. Music I could judge, you know, because I had done it so much and for so many years. Mm. Um, but my grades started getting better, uh, and I started to see my work was getting better. And I also was learning a lot about spirituality through my art. I started to learn about meditation by doing still life work. Because when you do a still life drawing, mm. you have to give 100% of your focus on what's before you and stay in that moment. Mm. And 
after a year of completing this, I thought, wait a minute, if I can do something that I've never done before and start out with uh, in such a state of, you know, not being good at all to, you know, I was getting to um, higher marks like a B's. And I thought if I could do that, start from, from scratch and improve, why can't I do that with music? And so what I learned was, you know, some people say, when you get into recovery, you can pick up where you left off. And what I've learned and what I say is when you get into recovery, you have to be willing to start over. Mm-hmm. And just as my different relationships, I don't want the same kind of relationship that I had with my parents before I was using, before I got sober when I was using. Why? Because half of that relationship was based upon lies. And that was me. That half was me. I, so I don't want that same relationship. And I don't want the same relationship with music either, because no, my relationship with music before I got sober was always questioning my worth, not and my abilities, but I questioned whether I was even worthy of being a good musician. Yeah. So when I started over, I started over with music. I got out um, my grade one piano books and uh, just started, literally started over. And uh, it took a a long while, much longer to get my voice. But, um, you know, I got to the point where I was able to, uh, I applied for grad school for composition and uh, film scoring. um, And I got in. So I, I used the same avenue. I was like, well, if education worked for the art, it can work again for the music. Yeah. Um, so over the last 16 years, you know, I've, I've had, I was able to get my voice back. I've gone through the process of re-educating myself, also deepening my spirituality and combining my music with spirituality which is what i did in the beginning right as singing as a youngster in church Mm. so it's come full circle but now it's it's in a way that is authentic for me that i get to be true to myself yeah and my voice is not a voice that i thought was supposed to be heard but my voice is one from the place of authenticity that is really me. And through the process, you know, I started while I was in grad school, I started studying some guided meditations to the point where I was being asked to do them. Um, And I started doing some work at retreats for other people doing their guided meditations. I started singing again. So the spiritual aspect, and so people were coming to me and wanting to talk to me about how they can do it. And I found myself in a position of uh, mentoring, but then it came to a point of like coaching them as well. And I wanted to make sure that I'm coaching in a way that is healthy, that is beneficial. So I went back to the University of Miami for a year and got a certification in executive coaching. 
um, because I want to make sure that I'm, I'm doing it. And coaching is not about telling someone to do coaching is about working with someone, uh, collaborating with someone um, to help them find their answers to help them find their authenticity it's not therapy no it's not it's enabling them isn't it as you say with those skills that they need yes and it's it's um like a a basketball player or a soccer player or as as you say football (laughs) yeah you know they all have coaches they all no matter how good they are oh yeah yeah they all have coaches right so there's so a coach helps them see the problems. Um, maybe they don't see themselves. You know, I can be observant and I can see someone as where they have the conflicts, the inner conflicts. They're saying one thing, but doing another, maybe they don't realize it. But a coach mm-hmm. observes and is able to see that and point that out to them. A coach, and based upon my own experience, I can empathize and I can ask certain questions that will lead them to an answer, not guiding them to a specific answer, but one that works for them. And so now I've put, uh, I have a program, uh, Making Amends with Your Muse. Right, Um, okay. Yeah, Making Amends with Your Muse, uh, Reclaiming Your Creativity and Recovery. And I work with a small group at a time. And um, it's it's quite fun, actually. Uh, it's not a course. It is 12 weeks long, but um, we work on the different things that are keeping us from um, fully committing to our creativity, especially people um, who haven't, um, haven't come to terms with that. They haven't made a, uh, amends with that. And... Uh, it's, it's funny because sometimes we don't, we're not even really talking about music a whole lot. We're talking about the things that um, the, the current group I've had, we've spent two weeks on boundaries because we want to create a space for us to create. We have to create that space. Yeah. Very something simple. But if you're not in the use, if you're not used to having boundaries and don't know how to do it, um, so we've been and um yeah it's it's so coaching a coach and creativity that's something that comes up are you creating the space to create Mm -hmm. yeah sounds amazing skips you've done so much and come so far would you say you're content with where you are now no 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 what do you aim for next then what would be your well, expanding, you know, I'm, I'm working on a musical myself, keeping my creative flow going. The coaching, I love doing. Um, one of the things for me in coaching is something that is helping me be of service. Um, and it creates, it generates an income by me being of service in a, in a way that I love and I'm passionate about. But that in turn helps me create my space creativity because if i'm working for someone else full-time i am giving my time to them fully yeah if i am able to be of service yeah and when i'm working for someone else full-time my i'm not passionate about it and it drains me of my creativity 
Mm. And, you know, it's so it's been some time for me to get to this point where now I'm, yeah, I'm working fully for myself and uh, doing something I'm passionate about. So it inspires me. It doesn't drain me. Yeah. It's striking that balance. Yeah. So what about any future aims or goals you may have, Skip? Um, well, I have a new program starting uh, specifically for songwriters, you know, because one thing is um, many of us in addicts and alcoholics, we use to self-medicate and that becomes part of the creative process. People think they need this to create. When we get into recovery and maybe find out, you know, like I have a mental uh disorder i have a bipolar disorder that we really weren't even able to treat until i got sober right and pe people people want to say it's funny because they'll be like oh no i can't take medications no no because i'll lose my creativity it's kind of the irony there right so mm. people who have come back into recovery and they have found their creativity the songwriting uh, is just to take them a little bit to the, the next level. So I'm looking forward to that. And my musical, I'm wanting my goal is to have it done in the next year. And then to, wow. one thing I love about Chicago is there is so much theater here. And there are a lot of small um, production houses that do music theater. So the chances of there's, you know, of being able to find a place to produce it are pretty good. So I'm looking forward to that. Who knows? I could it could even be done in West End. So wow, we'll be there. <laughs> Amazing. It has been fascinating talking to you, and I am so impressed with everything you've done. So thank you very very much for talking to us and giving us all this time. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you're making me blush. <laughs> thank you all very much. Thank you to Skip. It really shows how determination and grit can lead to unbelievable changes. Indeed. And in fact, next time we talk to a really determined woman, Elizabeth Lockhart-Muir. So do join us to hear her fascinating story. Once again, thank you to you, our listeners. And do please keep sending us feedback. We do listen and we do act on it. So thank you very much. Bye.